Have you ever caught yourself either invalidating your own suffering, saying something like, I shouldn't be complaining because so-and-so has it so much worse, or thinking or even saying, oh yeah, well, did you go through this? I didn't think so. I had it so much worse than you. Kind of like the classic fable of parents who walked home from school a mile in the snow with no shoes and of course, uphill both ways. Well, today we're going to talk about this idea of comparative suffering, that either you're bad because you're complaining when you haven't suffered enough to qualify to complain or feel sad, or you think someone else shouldn't complain because you've had it so much worse. Both lead to unhappiness and both are destructive. So we'll unpack this idea of comparative suffering and also provide three antidotes that will help you to overcome this kind of thinking and instead live in peace and joy and abundance, even through challenging times. So we are three weeks in on bed rest, almost three weeks, and I have found a lot of comfort and reassurance and information from a Facebook group that I joined. It's like a placenta previa Facebook mom group. And I think Facebook groups are fascinating, actually, because you'll just find a group of people who want to get together and talk about certain things. And I mean, I'm in like Disney Cruise crazy people Facebook groups where they're just obsessed with Disney cruises. And I'm in like a Disneyland moms who are, you know, key holders, like magic key holders, which is their definition of a season pass right now. And then I'm in this placenta preview mom group. And I've spent a lot of time in there reading other people's stories and trying to learn and trying to prepare myself for what this might look like in this pregnancy. And like I said, it's been really helpful. But I came across a post the other day that I thought was so interesting. So there was a girl who got on there and she just wanted to vent, which we'll get into that in a minute, like whether venting is, you know, when that's productive and maybe not productive. But she got in and said, I'm just so frustrated with a couple of my friends who are complaining about their pregnancies. They're complaining toward the end of their pregnancy, saying they're so miserable, they're so over it, they can't stand being pregnant any longer. They just, they wish they would go into labor early. I have said and experienced all of these things, being pregnant with four other kids. So I know exactly how that feels. You just feel like you want to die at the end of your pregnancy. So I can absolutely empathize with the women who she was talking about, but she said like, how dare they, you know, I mean, I don't want to say those were her exact words, but that was her sentiment was something along the lines of how dare they complain? Don't they? And especially around her, she was like, don't they know how much I've been through? And I was so scared to have my baby early and there were so many complications. I left a note for her about, hey, I totally understand where you're coming from because you've had a really scary pregnancy. But I said, also, your friends aren't trying to hurt you people just think about their own life experience. They're not really typically thinking about everyone surrounding them or anyone who might be listening and how that conversation might affect them. And I said, Brene Brown has taught about comparative suffering. And I actually had just last week turned on, so I have Discovery Channel membership. It's it's like a $7 membership a month or something. And it 
gives you the Magnolia Network and HGTV and a bunch of really like wholesome, great networks that I love. And it gives you Oprah Women's Network. And so you can watch like old Oprah reruns or Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. So I was watching an older episode with Oprah and Brene Brown. And in the episode, they talked about comparative suffering. And I was like, wow, this is fascinating. So I really zeroed in on that. Anyway, back to the Facebook group, I was able to tell her like, Brene Brown explains that comparative suffering can be damaging because we shouldn't, I didn't say we shouldn't, but I said something like, your friend's suffering, even though it may not feel equal to yours, is valid because that is her reality right now. And anyway, the girl didn't really love it that I said that to her. And she ended up deleting the post after because a couple other people gave her similar feedback to like, "Uh, I don't really, you know, I try not to internalize other people's suffering or other people's circumstances compared to my own. And I don't think she got what she was looking for. So she got frustrated and deleted it. But you know, I tried to offer her compassion at first, like upfront, like, hey, I totally understand where you're coming from. But also, I don't think your friends are trying to hurt you. And I think that this is a really important lesson for all of us to to look into. So we're going to talk about comparative suffering today and what that even is. So basically, Brene Brown coined the term comparative suffering. From what I understand, she came up with that. And She talks about how fear and scarcity drive comparative suffering. So if you think of comparative suffering like a pie or like a pizza, you know, and it's like, well, if I give you this big slice, then there might only be a small slice left for me to have empathy or for people to understand me or for my suffering to be valid. And that's just not how it works. She says it's not finite. It's There's not a limited amount of empathy that people can receive, that all of our human experiences are valid, and therefore all of our suffering is valid. Like I said, we'll get into this, but what are some of your initial thoughts, Neil? I think this is a fascinating concept. Well, I don't know, principle, whatever you want to call it, but because I've definitely, for me, that was like part of my upbringing was like, everyone's got it so much worse than you. Mm. You're just like so... You need to be thankful for what you do have, which is which is accurate. Like it is true. I'm like, okay, yeah. If I'm comparing myself to, yeah, I've I've talked about it all the time, almost to the point where I'm like, I don't even want to bring up the examples anymore. But yeah, my a couple two of my brothers died in tragic ways, and I look at that, and I I think like I can immediately draw comparisons. I'm like, well, I'm thinking of I le- I read the book which you gave to me left to tell so oh, that book immaculate is so good. talking about the rwandan genocide where it's like her whole family was killed in the genocide in rwanda and it's like i keep thinking of my comparing my suffering to that i'm like well that's man i'm going through nothing compared to that like she lost her entire family was killed in this brutally killed in this genocide she hid in a closet essentially with several other women for 90 days while this thing took place like uh, what am I complaining about so I've gotten caught in that and even with my brother recently dying you know, three years ago and being killed I remember thinking about that and playing that through in my mind I'm like like why am I why am I complaining like I've got so many good things I've, I've got a great family like I'm healthy 
so many people, one of my buddies the other day said, worse things have happened to better people. <laughs> and I, I'm like, that's funny. You know, and that's what I thought, you know, I'm like, worse things have happened to better people. But, but at the same time, I think that it can, for me, invalid, not, invalidate, yeah, invalidate your suffering, invalidate totally. your suffering. But what I learned, I think about grief or what I've been learning and am learning after losing a brother to suicide when I was 12 and dealing with that in a way to where I kind of just pushed it away, but it, then it blew out sideways where it came out in like lashing out or acting out in different ways, um, contributed, probably was a contributing factor the way that I dealt with it to getting into an addiction. So I think this go around, I recognized this has to pass through. Like I can't just push this you know, if grief and, and trauma or whatever is kind of like a, a wave coming over me, like I can't just push, push it around me and block it. Like it has to, I have to accept it and pass and, and allow it to pass through. And that's requires me to feel it, to, to mm -hmm. accept it, to process it, to express it, to go through this, this whole process of the stages of grief and, and working through those. And so this go around, I've tried to just talk about it almost constantly, almost to the point where people are just probably like, okay, man, I get it. Like, it's hard. I don't think anyone feels that way, by the way. I don't think they do. But in my mind, knowing what it's like to not do that and having that blowout sideways, I'm like, I just, I've got to like not care what people think. And even if I'm, I'm getting up in church Every, we, you know, we do fast and testimony meeting every Sunday where you like can get up and talk about what you believe and, and why you believe it. Even if I'm sharing about that. Well, every luckily it's month, not every Sunday. It's, every, it's, it's once every a month. It's once a month. <laughs> I'm sure my, the people in my ward or congregation no. are just like, okay, dude. Listen, it's, people don't <laughs> feel that way. I want to address this because I think some people yeah, no, feel like this good. where they're like, Everyone's sick of me talking about this. I can't talk oh, about it anymore. Everybody's, it. everyone else is over it. So I should be too. And that's just not, first of all, I think that people are thinking about you far less than you think they are. I you think know, that's true. I do Most agree with people, that. This was actually a really profound experience for me. So when I went through my divorce, so I was married right out of college and then got divorced a year later. Well, I went through a year long a year long divorce process. So I was separate, like legally separated for a year and just going through a lot of really hard stuff. And I went back to my parents' home ward for that year to go to church. I was living in Holiday and that's where I lived while Neil and I were dating. But I, I lived out there in this cute little rental home in Holiday, but I would drive back home to my parents' ward in Bountiful, Utah and go to church with them, with their congregation. So this was like a whole group of people that I grew up with that have known me since I was a kid. And so my bishop from when I was a teenager came over to me one of those Sundays. And I, I know he could just tell that I was really down. And it was a really hard experience for me to go to church for those years because I felt like such a social misfit. I couldn't go to church with my roommates who I lived with in holiday because they went to a singles ward. So it was just for single people to like go to church together and potentially date and whatever. I mean, that's not the purpose of a singles ward, but that's definitely when you go to a singles ward, people assume, okay, this person is not married and available. So that wasn't really appropriate for me to go there. But then even in my home ward, I felt like, and I was thinking this, I was thinking people were like, what do we do with this girl? She's 
like we're not really sure she's not married, but she's not single. So I just felt like such a social misfit. And I felt like everyone was looking at me and thinking about me and judging me and whatever. And my bishop from when I was a teenager, so he was no longer the bishop of the ward. He had been released because bishops served for like a period of usually five years. So he had been released, but he came up and talked to me and said, Corinne, I just want you to know that you might be feeling like when you walk into church, everyone's looking at you, thinking about your situation, judging you. He was like, just so you know, all of these people are thinking about themselves. When they walk into church, they are thinking about themselves, <laughs> their funny. own problems, their own situation. Everybody in this chapel has problems and you are not their problem. As much as you think people are thinking about you, they probably 95% of the time are thinking about themselves. And it's so true. So I think that's one thing to keep in mind. And I think another thing to keep in mind is what other people think of you is none of your business. And so if that's what you need for healing is to just get things out and give people the opportunity to love you and show you empathy and kindness, that's on them what they choose to do with that opportunity. So I just want to address that. I think it's super important to not feel like I'm beating a dead horse. People are sick of me talking about whatever challenging or or grief-stricken situation I've been through. I mean, I have friends who I've been praying for daily since they had a close loved one pass away, and I don't get sick of praying for them. Like, I pray for them every day. For example, one person, because I know she's been really public about her experience, Emily Peterson, who owns Serenoni. We've loved Serenoni for years and years. We've worked with them many times. Neil worked with her husband, Nathan, and and had a great relationship with him. And then he passed away this past year. And I have prayed for her literally every day. And I never get sick of it. I never feel like, wow, I'm kind of tired of praying for Emily. I just feel so much love and compassion for her. So I think that if you are feeling that way, that it's probably just Satan trying to get to you, making you feel like you should just stop talking about this. Because I think most people who care want to hear. And then people who don't care, that's on them. So, but do you get back to comparative suffering? I think it's damaging in two ways. So first of all, is the way that you're talking about where it's like, well, I have nothing to complain about because yeah, my brother got shot, but Immaculate in Rwanda watched several of her family members get shot and she lost almost all her family or whatever. Or she lived through this, you know, horrible experience, like hiding in the size of a shoebox with five other women and for 90 days. I mean, you could literally find any example you want and say, well, this person had it way worse. So what do I have to complain about? Invalidating your own suffering, I think can be really damaging where that's clearly not what the Savior wanted us to do. Like if we look at John, I love that John 14, I feel like people focus on 14, six, which is a great scripture. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come unto the Father but by me. I love that. It's I think they like print it on the in and out like yeah. to go bags. The, it's I think it's under their like little cartons that hold the hamburgers. Okay. The, yeah, the it's a wonderful scripture. But if you keep going in John, there are some awesome, awesome verses about how the Father and the Son created a plan, a perfect plan for us to feel peace and comfort, which that is the ultimate, like the ultimate demonstration of Jesus doesn't look at anyone and go, well, you're not suffering enough for me to be there for you. There's nobody that he's like, 
mm, you're a little stubbed toe. I don't really care about that because someone else had their arm amputated today. Like that's just not how it works. And I love that to think about that. Like when our children pray for things that are so little to them, they're, they're little maybe to us, but big to them because their worlds are so little. And I feel like the Savior really, really cares about all of us and whatever's important to us. So he says in here, and I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be with you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And there's even more verses that talk about this, but I just love that that is like God's perfect plan is to provide the spirit with us, to comfort us. And there's nothing in the scriptures that invalidates a certain level of suffering that says we have to get to this point in order to cash in on having the comforter. And also this is where it talks about it's a verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And I specifically remember that the day Dave died, or it actually was like the next morning, but because we found out that he had actually died on Thursday, but the next morning when we went to the temple before we knew he was missing, that morning that scripture came into my mind and I posted it on an Instagram story with like a picture of the temple. And I think that that's so, to me, it felt so personally profound that that was the scripture in my head and in my heart that was like lingering with me that day when the start of all the chaos and all of the heartache and all of the suffering started. So I think that that is God's way of looking at all of us and saying, whatever it is that's troubling you, I will give you peace and comfort, not the way the world will, not the way the world will rank order suffering and say, well, this person deserves it more, or you should be grateful because so. And then I also think that there's an element of pride, right? And this is a little bit like what that girl, when she was like, how could anyone, it's, it's like a badge of honor. It's like, I'm going through so much. How can someone else complain? What I think is really interesting is maybe it's just me because it's my favorite talk, but I feel like all roads lead back to pride, like examining pride and how that is playing a part. In my favorite talk of all time, Beware of Pride, 1989, President Benson, actually, I love it when you listen to it or watch it. President Hinckley, who is like my hero of all time, reads this talk, but President Benson wrote the talk and he says, pride is a sin that readily can readily be seen in others, but is rarely admitted in ourselves. Most of us consider pride to be a sin of those on top, such as the rich and the learned looking down at the rest of us. And I think that's a pretty well understood, oh yeah, like people who gain a lot or they have a lot, they can be prideful, like a maybe like a professional basketball star or a celebrity or whatever. I think a lot of people in the world perceive pride to be someone like that who's like, I have everything and I'm better than other people. Like, I think that's the more common understanding of pride. 
But interestingly, this is what President Benson said. He says, there is, however, a far more common ailment among us, and that is pride from the bottom looking up. It is manifest in so many ways, such as fault finding, gossiping, backbiting, murmuring, living beyond our means, envying, coveting, withholding gratitude and praise that might lift another and being unforgiving and jealous. So that to me is really interesting because I think that sometimes the pride of feeling like, well, I've gone through so much, how dare they? Or feeling like your suffering gives you more validation because you've had it harder. That road just leads to misery. That doesn't... (laughs) That's not going to take you to a happy place, nor is it going to help you be compassionate or understanding or loving all those fruits of the spirit that we try to live by to bring us like true happiness and joy. Looking at other people with bitterness because you've been through something that qualifies you to be more angry at the world or, or more justified in your suffering is going to lead you down a road of misery, not a road of happiness. And And so there's another great talk by Neil A. Maxwell called But for a Small Moment. And he talks about pride and ego. He says a third trap. So he talks about like traps that you can fall into. A third trap which we can fall if we are not careful is to fail to notice that at the center of many of our challenges is pride, is ego. In most emotional escalations, with which I am familiar, if one goes into the very center of them, there is ego asserting itself relentlessly. The only cure for rampant ego is humility. And this is why circumstances often bring us to a kind of compelled or forced humility so that we may recover our equilibrium. Humility can help us dampen our pride. Ironically, for those of us who most need to serve to develop our capacity to love, our very egos often make us unapproachable So far as others are concerned, we therefore are underused and we wonder why. And this is typical of the trials that we impose upon ourselves. I mean, he's a literary genius, genius, so it always takes me a minute to unpack what Maxwell says. But I think what he's saying here is the point is to try to get ourselves to a humble state, to that equilibrium of realizing that we need God in all things and that he's there to be our ultimate savior, comforter. And when we're holding on really tight to pride and wanting others to see like just how bad it is for us or wanting that recognition, it blocks. It's like the ultimate stumbling block. That's why also going back to Benson's talk about beware of pride. He says, pride is the ultimate stumbling block. And I see that. I've seen it with friends. I've seen it with people who, instead of taking a trial and feeling it, yes, like validating it, feeling it, processing it totally, like you're saying, but instead of just going through that, like clinging to the pride and bitterness of it, it does block you from healing, from learning, from getting out of that whatever you're supposed to get out of it, right? Yeah. No, I think there's a lot there. Well, I keep thinking of this the relativity. So I, I think of like challenges or suffering or trials or whatever it be, it's relative to the person, right? So, I mean, each individual person is different. Their set of, set of circumstances is different. The way their upbringing was different. Mm-hmm. Their capacities are different. 
I think something hard could happen to one person and it could affect them totally differently than somebody else based on these variables, right? So I think that's something to keep in mind and understand is that everybody's a fingerprint, like no one is the same. And so something that, that, you know, from an outsider's perspective, we might be tempted to look at and be like, that's not that big of a deal. Like you broke up with your high school boyfriend or girlfriend. Oh, this is such a good example. In that moment, you're just like, get over it. Like, oh my gosh, it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't mean anything like you will get past this and look back and laugh. You won't die. But going but in the midst of that, I mean, your world is just crashing down. I mean, you've went through this. So like this is one of my favorite (laughs) examples of just I like resented my seminary teacher because seminary teachers, man. Those dang seminary teachers. My seminary teacher had recently said the scriptures can tell you everything. The scriptures will get you through everything in life. And when my boyfriend dumped me three days before homecoming, and I had to sit at home with the dress that I had bought to go to homecoming and he took some other girl and I just was devastated and my whole world was rocked. I remember just feeling like this is such a lie. Like there is nothing in the scriptures that is going to tell me what to do about my high school boyfriend breaking up with me right before the most important night of my whole life up until this point. (laughs) That's like what it felt like. And it was the first time I was old enough to go to homecoming dance the year before I hadn't been old enough. And I felt so much devastation. And I remember one of my church leaders, one of my young women's leaders, Laura Belknap, who I just love so much. She was on our podcast a couple years ago, right when people were trying to make decisions about where to send their kids back to school, what to do for schooling in the pandemic in 2020. And she is on the Utah Board of Education. So she's has so many gifts and talents and is really wonderful. But one of her greatest gifts is to make every person feel valid and important. And she has the gift. If you've ever met anyone like this, you know what I'm talking about. She has the gift of making you feel like you are the most important person to her in the entire world when she's with you. And I remember she came over right after that breakup happened and sat down with me and said, this is, this sucks. This is awful. It's the worst thing that's ever happened to you, right? And I was like, yes. And I just felt like, oh my gosh, finally someone gets it. And it was validating to me for her to be like, yeah, this hurts. And it's really hard. And it wasn't like, hey, I know you're sad, but you'll get over it. And there's way better things ahead for you. And that there's so many fish in the sea. Like, it wasn't anything like that. It was just like, yeah, this hurts right now, doesn't it? And I'm really sorry. And that is Brene Brown's, that is her explanation of how we get over comparative suffering. And instead, we choose empathy. And she says, empathy is the antidote to shame because she says that shame feeds into comparative suffering by saying, I am bad because, but, and this is a little bit what you talked about, like I'm a bad person because I'm feeling so sorry for myself when other people have gone through something so much worse. Where if you're giving yourself empathy or you're giving empathy to others, that is her definition of, of like the healing. And, and to me, it's very similar to humility versus pride. That's the, are we going to choose to see God as the ultimate healer of all things? Or are we going to like hold on to bitterness and and anger and hurt because it gives us. And I remember with 
you and with going through the 12 steps, that was step six was hard for me because step six is asking God to remove your character. Oh, six and seven, I guess. Six is like you become prepared to ask God to remove your character weaknesses. And then in seven, you ask him to actually remove those character weaknesses. And the one that I didn't want to let go of was my anger and resentment because it gave me this false sense of security. Like if I'm mad at you, if I'm always a little bit mad at you and you always, if you owe me a little bit always, then you can't hurt me because I'll always be a little bit mad at you for X, Y, Z, for the things that have happened in the past. And I knew that that was the hardest character weakness for me to let go of, but it was so miraculous how truly the Savior's atonement took that away and enabled me to move on from the things that had hurt me in the past and just literally let them go. So I think that for me, it's a combination of, yes, having empathy for others, but also recognizing that God has the power to make things whole that you feel like could never be whole ever again, you know? And instead of holding on to that bitterness and anger and hurt, allowing the Savior to heal you, allowing the Savior to take things over that nobody else can heal. And I remember too, in my journey of creating a relationship with God and a relationship with Jesus Christ, that it it dawned on me one day that we needed a Savior because, and we needed that very individual, like you said, fingerprint relationship with God, because if there was some twin in the world, if there was somebody who understood perfectly, we wouldn't need the Savior as much. If there was somebody who grew up across the street from their elementary school, just like you, and was the youngest of six boys and had literally every single thing happen to them that happened to you, and you could call them up and be like, bro, today's really hard, and they understood you perfectly, then you wouldn't have to rely on the Savior as much because you'd have somebody who would be like, yep, I've been through that exactly. But there's literally no one in the world who's been through exactly what you have been through, whoever you're, whoever you are listening to this. Whatever really challenging thing that you're facing right now and the mountains you've had to climb to get to the point that you are and the mountains that are ahead of you, there is a reason and it is by divine design that the Savior Jesus Christ is the only person who experienced all of our sorrows and understands us perfectly because of what he went through in the Garden of Gethsemane and the atonement that he performed. So I love that because it makes that relationship literally at the top. It's the number one. It's the one that I have to keep strong in order for me to be able to push through anything that happens in life because I know that he understands perfectly what it's like to be on bed rest with your fifth baby and you know a lot of other younger kids who need things and running a business and all of the things that you know and being worried about having a NICU baby and worried about possibly bleeding out and all of the stuff that I'm trying to deal with right now the savior understands perfectly so i mean that reminds me of a scripture just exactly what you're saying that christ understands and there's a scripture i love in the book of mormon that talks a lot about that and kind of why Christ went through or what he went through in part. And this is in the Book of Mormon, Alma 7. But he says, And he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, 
and this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith, he will take upon him the pains and sicknesses of his people, and he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people, and he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. So I love that. Very, very specific. Um, like physical challenges, sicknesses, infirmities, um, temptations, even death. Like Christ took all of these things on and went through all of them to gain a perfect understanding of not only how to have compassion or succor us in those challenges and, and temptations, but also how to overcome them and and break the bands of those challenges. So admittedly, I think it a lot of times I'm like, I don't know perfectly how or why, you know, I, I kind of know based off of what we know in the scriptures and this scripture in particular, how or why it works, but praying and asking God for help, like that's why it works. And that's why something can happen and there can be an immediate relief or spiritually you can receive strength is because Christ did this and spiritually knows how to succor us. And when we ask for that help, and, and kind of ask for the atonement to wash over us and help us in our lives. Like that's why it works is because Christ did this and totally understands through and through what it was like, how it feels, how to have compassion and how to sucker us and then how to overcome it or work through it. That's just the miracle of Jesus Christ. Like that's why that's so amazing and, and such, such a focus. So I think we've gotten to a lot of good takeaways to focus on empathy and that empathy is the antidote to shame and that humility is the ultimate antidote to pride. And I want to talk about one more thing. And I think that gratitude is a huge key also. And gratitude can be confused with comparative suffering and or maybe used in the wrong way. But I think that it's appropriate to sit back and try to give yourself perspective. And we've done that with this situation where I'm like, okay, here are the things I'm grateful for. I'm grateful that there's an end in sight where potentially another situation could be like, well, I'm in bed for who knows how long indefinitely or whatever. This is a temporary thing. This will end. And we have an end date, which is like no later than the end of this year. And you know, something like, I'm so grateful that you work from home. Like, I think that putting things into perspective and finding gratitude and not in a sense of like, oh yeah, well, we're so much better than, we're better off than someone else. But in the sense of look at what we have to be grateful for, that shift in perspective is always going to help you get through hard things and, and do it in a way that's joyful and abundant and brings you peace and happiness. And so I think if you can step back and try to give yourself perspective and not in a way that invalidates your suffering, like not in a way that you, Neil, would be like, well, what do I have to be sad about, you know, people in Rwanda who went through the genocide? Not like that, but maybe perhaps in a way where you step back and say, you know what, I'm so grateful that there was nothing, I've heard you say this, there was nothing left undone with Dave. Like the last conversation we had was so good and it was really deep and we talked about really heartfelt things 
And I'm so glad that there's nothing that I, I have no regrets about our last interaction or the way we left things on the table. Something like that is a perfect example of giving yourself perspective and gratitude, finding gratitude in the hard things. I think that that is one of the ways that we can gracefully go through trials in life and learn what we're supposed to learn. I love that Melody Beattie, who wrote one of my favorite books of all time, Codependent No More, she says this, gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. It turns what we have into enough and more. It turns denial into acceptance, chaos to order, confusion to clarity. It can turn a meal into a feast, a house into a home, a stranger into a friend. Gratitude makes sense of our past, brings peace for today, and creates a vision for tomorrow. And that's where I'm trying to live. I Every morning, more than ever, I'm trying to just wake up and identify things that I'm grateful for. What do I have to be grateful for today? What's going well today? What is going to start me off on the right foot where I'm looking with eyes of positivity at exactly what my situation is right now? Not what I wish it to be or what I had hoped it would be, but right now, where can I still find joy and gratitude in the circumstance that I'm in? Yeah, I think that's amazing. And I think for me, it's I'm learning more about how much God is really helping in these mm-hmm. scenarios and how miraculous each day is. I think that it's when I can stop and look at it and try and keep an eye out for little tender mercies or things that are kind of miracles and you start piecing those together, it's it's overwhelming. You're like, this is wow. Like there are so many, but... I think that challenging situations can be the type of things where you can kind of have the blinders on to that momentarily. Like you can kind of shut out and be taken out and disconnected and not see this, you know, with spiritual eyes what's happening and, and see the strength and grace and the blessings that God's providing. So it takes, it takes effort to actually stop and listen and look and and account for those miraculous things but when you do it's it's amazing you're blown away thanks so much for listening to mint arrow messages make sure you follow us on instagram at mint arrow subscribe to our apple podcasts and rate and review us if you like us and to get show notes go to mintarrow.com podcast and you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox and we'll email you every time there's a new episode <laughs>